The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. Today, we're going to be talking about a little thing Carl Jung called the shadow. It's really the entirety of the unconscious. And there are many people out there today telling us that the shadow is the bad, sabotaging part of us. And that because it is, we need to clean it out. Those same people tell us that the ego, though it is also bad, is the opposite of the shadow. And what we need to do with the ego is get rid of it altogether. But what if the divine self is also in the unconscious? And the ego is just a liaison between the conscious and the unconscious. Would we want to get rid of the ego? Would we really want to clean out the shadow? You see, since most of us have lived largely unconscious of who we actually are, the self is hidden from us in the unconscious. Instead of living as self, we've lived in an identity that isn't at all who we are, but rather a mask and costume meant to help us cope with and survive our childhoods and families of origin. And the liaison of the ego is, in this case, weighted way too heavy on the outer world side of that polarity. So if what we have learned about the shadow isn't really true, how do we work with shadow? Keep it right here for the next hour. We're going to find out. So let's talk just a little bit about this shadow thing. You know what a shadow is when you uh, go outside and you see the shadow of a long tree or you go walking on the beach in the evening and you see that your shadow grows longer and longer and longer because the light is getting further and further behind you. Um, that's, it's similar to the unconscious. The more, uh, the more the light um, is, is blocked out by a solid object, the more of a deeper shadow it casts. And so the more solid our identities are, the deeper our shadows go. Uh, so, okay, let's talk a little bit about shadow and ego and identity. Let's get some definitions here that I'm going to use today. I take the word shadow from Carl Jung. He's the one that came up with that word. And um, it really meant that, that while we're living in the light, we also cast a shadow that we ourselves don't often see. And other people can sometimes see what we're up to, but we don't see it because we're living into some way of looking at ourselves and of our lives and we behave accordingly. And uh, so we may not even be aware of what's going on in our shadow at all. As a matter of fact, that's part of the definition of the shadow is that we're not aware of it at all. And, and so that's the shadow. The ego, typically referred to very often, in, especially today in the, in the spiritual world, we think of the ego as this kind of uh, sense of ourselves that is really not good for us. And it keeps us from um, 
being able to be the spiritual beings we want to be. In fact, some people would actually split it off this way. We have a higher self, which we consider to be the, uh, closer to the divine, and a lower self, which is generally called the ego. And it has all of the power that the, that the, the character of the, of the Bible has, which is called Satan or the devil. It has the power to blind us. It has the power to fool us and trick us. It has the power to tempt us. It has the power to make us do bad things. It's just a bad guy. And so we have to get rid of it. And, and uh, that's, that's what we hear is that we need to get rid of ego altogether. Uh, so, and, but, and then we have the identity. Um, the identity is very different from ego in that the identity is something we identify with as a child. So the, the, the ego, as I said in the, in the precursor to all of this, is actually a, li- a liaison between the conscious and the unconscious. What that means, if you think about it, is it's kind of like a, a seesaw where conscious is on one side of the seesaw and unconsciousness is on the other side of the seesaw. And as long as those two are equal in weight, then, then the person lives a fairly balanced life. But when one gets weighted too heavy, the person's life is unbalanced. Many of us are weighted too heavy on the outer world, the externalities. We incorporate into the inner world what is actually external, other people's opinions, society values, all of those things. We never ask ourselves what we believe. We just take in what society says and we just go with it. And so many of us are weighted too, too heavy on the outer um, world. And on on the other side, there are people who are weighted too heavy on the inner the unconscious. So in that case, that's when we might have hallucinations and delusions and, and uh, we might uh, live in a sort of surreal world where we don't really work in, in terms of what's going on in the, real, in the outer world at all. We work only from the inner world. And that's, that's weighted too heavy on that side. We do need that balancer, the liaison, which is the, the ego. And it actually communicates between the conscious and the unconscious for us. And uh, so when we have a dream, for example, that comes up from the unconscious, the ego can help us define that dream and name it in terms that match what the unconscious is really trying to say if the ego is balanced. If not, then it's going to weigh it very heavy on the external or weigh it too heavy on the internal or the unconscious. So that's really the clearest definition of the ego. And, it, and, and because the identity is attached to the ego, we come, sometimes get those mixed up. So the identity is something I've identified with as a child that helps me survive my parents' um, or my or surroundings in whatever form that takes. Um, and it, lo- it works like this. My, my, my environment provides me with a mirror that I can look into because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for mirrors to say, who am I this time? And, and as I look in those mirrors, I... I see people's reflections, I mean, people's um, emotional responses to me. I see their, um, their reactions to life in general. I see their belief systems, and I see all of that in a preverbal way that doesn't have words attached to it. There's no logos in this, in this world that I'm in as an infant. There's just what I see in people's body language and what I intuit in the air and what I, what I can sort of uh, feel in their facial expressions and that kind of thing. So there's a whole lot of receptivity that goes on at that age. I'm just purely receiving what information my external world has given me. And 
in order to feel like a part of that world, I will identify with whatever expectations that world has of me in order to feel like I can stay a part of that world because all of us have this basic fear of abandonment. We don't want to be abandoned by our parents. Who wants that? So we, we, we want to be connected to them. So we identify with whatever it is that they say we are and therefore we get to stay a part of that unit. Uh, John Bradshaw talked about something he called a family trance in which people and the whole family just sort of operates out of this same kind of uh, behavior uh, sort of paradigm, if you will, not just behavior, but it's behavior, thinking, feeling. It's how we, the family, we respond to life. And this is what we do. This is how we interact. This is what this is our behavior. This is how we see life. This there's this big we, and and because there's this we, the person whose whose identity now has matched the family's trance gets to stay a part of the family. The minute that child uh, begins to grow and differentiate a little bit from the family that's when there's not so much a we anymore, it's an I now. And we absolutely, even in the healthiest dynamics, children do need to move from we to I and then back to we again so that there's a differentiation between um, who I am and who you are, but I can still be with you. Um, but And so that's sort of a, a definition of the terms we're going to use today. But I want to say because ego has taken such a big slam and because shadow has taken such a big slam, we have these real um, dysfunctional beliefs about what should be what we should be doing with ego and shadow. So there's so many people out there today saying that what we need to do with shadow is we need to plummet its depths and um, get in there and kick over the gravestones and... Um, you know, knock over the pumpkins and uh, kill all the witches and let the houses land, it on, uh, land on the witches and steal her golden slippers and then we can finally be free of shadow and we won't need an unconscious at all. Um, and then when it comes to ego, what we're supposed to do is really just not have an ego. We're supposed to be subsumed into the grand oneness that there is and not have an I am at all. And... Um, when we do that, we uh, we are considered to be truly spiritual and we have arrived at nirvana or something like it. And uh, so I'm going to question those beliefs today. And so um, I, I would ask you, challenge you to just whatever you it is that you believe, just kind of sit beside that for a few minutes and, and hear these other alternative views and ask yourself if it's possible that they're right, and that's all I ask you to do. And if you don't believe that they're right in the end, fine. That's that's all good with me. Um, but I think that what we have to talk about first is we, we don't want to get rid of ego. And here's why. If we get rid of ego, we don't have that balancing uh, liaison between the inner and the outer world. There's nothing there between those two. And then what? How do they crash into each other? What does that mean in terms of our mental health? Um, and as a matter of fact, mental health practitioners will very clearly de- uh, declare who has a strong ego and who doesn't. The people with strong egos are able to sort of keep that balance between the unconscious and the, un- and the conscious worlds. And they're able to recognize the distinction between who you are and who I am. I know where my boundaries are. I know that I stop here and you begin there. And that's one of those things that's really, really hard for a lot of us. We p- carry other people's emotions. We worry and, and fiddle with other people's stuff. We think we can fix other people. We cross over those boundaries all the time in all kinds of ways. And that 
keeps us depressed and down and cloudy about who we actually are and what we're actually doing here. And we get stuck in that identity that says, I am your rescuer. That's what I'm doing. I'm here to rescue you. I'm here to rescue the world. I've literally had people come into my office and say, my job is to change the world. Okay, well, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think probably that person's job is more likely to be something like, I'm here to figure myself out. Um, and as we do that, we, because we are one, it does add to the sort of um, psychological foundation that all of us have when one of us begins to see life for what it really is or define the self as divine self. Uh, so we, we do have an impact on the world, but it's not the one we think we have. We're not going to change the world uh, by uh, going out there and trying to tell it what to do or carrying its problems or crusading against the windmills. Um, the world eventually does evolve, and it evolves as each one of us does the work of, of uh, working with the shadow and uh, facilitating a healthy ego. So, okay, the, the shadow now is a whole different ballgame. The ego can be, can be talked about in, in, in words that make sense to us because it is the ego and it does know something about the external world. It does also know something about the internal and the unconscious world um, as the unconscious reveals itself slowly over time to the ego. The ego can sort of frame that and put it into words and language and that's how it's made conscious. So that's one of the helps that the ego gives us, and that's another reason why we don't want to get rid of it. Um, the identity, however, will shift and change and transform so that we eventually slide out of it, kind of like a snake slides out of uh, the skin. It just molted because, it, you know, it needs a new skin. It's time for that old skin to go, and the new skin now has taken over. So you can just slide out of that old skin and leave it behind. And so the identity can be left behind. The ego cannot be left behind, um, and the shadow cannot be left behind either. As a matter of fact, it is already behind because because it is behind us. It is the thing that that we don't see that is trailing behind us as we face the sun. So, okay, how do we work with shadow? Well, the process, and I'm going to be able to just start it here before our break, but the, the process is not one of cleaning out the shadow. The process is one of getting to know the shadow and what's in it and befriending and integrating those parts of the shadow that have been that that we don't see, which is all of the shadow. So when we when we consider the possibility of what to do about the shadow, it should not be I'm gonna go in there and clean that mess out. We might do that with a nasty bathroom or a bad kitchen or something like that or an old house that needs cleaning out. But we can't do that with a shadow. There's no cleaning out to be done. In fact, a lot of the things that we have repressed and therefore put into the unconscious are, are things that are very essential to our well-being. We didn't like them. We didn't want them in our lives, and we thought they were rejectable material. And so we sent them into the unconscious. But it will turn out, as we get to know those pieces of ourselves, that they are essential to our well-being. Let me give you a real quick example, and one I've used fairly frequently because it's real simple. Um, the, a person who feels guilty and feels responsible for other people very commonly will eventually get tired of in, being in that role because they begin to see that while they are there, they are there, they are there for other people, 
No one is ever there for them. Why? Because they have peopled their world with people who need them. Not people who will help take care of them, but people who need them. And why have they done that? They've done that to prop up that identity that says, I am a good person because I take care of other people. And that's one of the one of our most dangerous um, methods of trying to survive is to sacrifice ourselves for other people because what happens is we totally lose ourselves. And that is exactly how it should be put. All that we are, all that we truly are gets put into the unconscious. It is now shadow material. And uh, because we've done that, we're not able to see uh, that what we're doing in the external world has nothing whatsoever to do with who we actually are. It has only to do with a feeling that we're going to be bad if we don't do these good things for other people. And uh, so that's how we live out of that sort of knee-jerk reaction that, oh, I better do this because then I'll be a bad person if I don't. I can't live with myself if I'm a bad person. Therefore, let me go do this. And after a while, that begins to feel plastic. And then after a while, we begin to begin, uh, feel like there's some resentment there. And then because there's resentment there, we start to feel like we must really be bad people after all because, I mean, who, doesn't, who feels resentment but a bad person? Because resentment's a bad feeling, right? So uh, that's sometimes when I see a client come in to therapy. Uh, they want to get rid of this bad person who's just popped up into their awareness and made them see that now I just feel so resentful of other people. And um, what they want me to do is make, help them make the resentment go away. So they want me to clean out the shadow. They want me to say, oh, okay, well, you don't really have to uh, worry about that anymore. We're going to go in there and get a broomstick and shoo that monster out of the closet, and then you won't have to worry about him anymore, and uh, and you'll go on and be a good person, and everything will be fine now. Only problem is that resentment will, if used appropriately, save their lives, literally save their lives. That thing that they consider to be bad and which has been repressed in the unconscious because they think it's bad needs to come out into the, un- into the conscious world and become very apparent and very useful to that person because that resentment is saying, guess what? You're doing a whole lot of things that aren't really real. You're doing a whole lot of things that you think are going to help you prop up an identity of being a good person. But really, those things are killing you. Resentment can clue you in to the, uh-oh, yeah, this is not something that my authentic self really wants to do. This is not genuine. This is coming from a game I'm playing, a bargain I've made with the universe that says, if I'm really, really good, then maybe I can feel like a worthy person. And then we have to start working with worthiness altogether. And what does that mean to be a worthy person? Does it mean you're good? Does it mean you're never bad? What is a worthy person? So this is how the, when, when something pops into our awareness from the unconscious and we start becoming aware of something we've earlier rejected, that thing can begin to be the thing that saves our lives. So we're going to talk some more about that right after the break. Stay tuned for more. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Ask Theo Live. Channels to a new reality. 
Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live, channels to a new reality, Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. Listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1 866 472 5795. That's 1 866 472 5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And the Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. AIHT offers degrees in interfaith and interspiritual educational programs that enable you to not only find your own authentic spirituality, but allow you to do that in a way that gives you a degree, a master's, a doctorate, or ministerial bachelor's degree. And these doctoral programs are broken down so that you may get a Ph.D., a doctor of ministry, or in the holistic theology program, a doctor of theology degree. The programs in which you may get these degrees are Holistic Theology, Holistic Health, Holistic Ministries, Metaphysics, and Parapsychology. These courses offer depth and meaning to not only your own spiritual search for truth and meaning, but to your capacities to bring your healing, loving, guiding gifts to the world. The population of students includes doctors, lawyers, healers, nurses, ministers, counselors, psychologists, social workers, nutritionists, herbologists, homeopathy practitioners, psychics, mediums, and many others who have a special gift but need to learn to hone it and credential it. It also includes students who simply wish to enhance their own profound spiritual journeys. What's most important to AIST's model is the exploratory nature of studies that reach to the depths of all the world's religions, traditions, and paths, and even to transcend them to find the mystical core of them all in order to facilitate your own journey to your own authentic spirituality by utilizing, as your text-writing teachers, spiritual experts from all over the world. You can learn more about what is offered by going to www.aiht.edu or if you'd like to talk directly to the admissions director, call Beverly Love at 800-650-4325. You know, Oprah says education is the key to unlocking the world, a passport to freedom. Call and get your passport today. 
And before we go any further, I want to make this announcement, and we'll say it again at the end of the show. We have Mark Nepo coming to the show next week, so you want to be here for that. He's going to be talking about his books, The Endless Practice and The Reduced to Joy. A uh, wonderful poet, a great philosopher, a beautiful man. Uh, I really am looking forward to the interview there, so you want to be here for that. So we're talking about the shadow, and what we just said before the break was that uh, we can use what material we find in the shadow to bring us to further awareness and greater strength. And we use the world, uh, example of the resentment that the, uh, a person has put away for years, uh, thinking that they're serving other people and sacrificing the self, but a slow, steady Chinese torture drip effect has been building and building and building over the years so that the resentment finally becomes conscious and the person becomes aware that that resentment is there and then they begin to feel guilty about the resentment and they come to therapy and say, make this resentment go away. And of course the therapist says, maybe what we need to do is use that resentment for your furthered awareness. And so if a person begins to use resentment, what will happen? They will begin to uh, do something for somebody else, like they always have, and their resentment will pop up, and they will, they'll feel this crunching feeling in their chest, and they'll start to say, oh, this is not something that's really authentic. My resentment is here to tell me that this thing that I'm about to do is not really authentic. I'm about to do something else again that isn't genuine. It's not coming from true compassion. It's coming from that place inside me that feels like, in order to be good, I have to... Um, do good things and I have to prove to myself over and over and over again that I'm a good person by doing these good things over and over and over again so first that implies that goodness has a definite definition which it doesn't and uh, and that badness has a definite definition which it doesn't and also it implies that I'm not worthy unless I'm doing these good things so we said before the break that we were going to talk about worthiness and let's talk about that just a little bit We've based our entire understanding of life on this concept of worthiness. A person is worthy if dot dot dot. Put whatever fill in the blank. Whatever you want to put in there, you I'm sure you have your own individual something that you can put in there. A person is worthy if, and that if is the problem. Um, we have lived our lives, our built our culture on that that subtext that you are worthy if and if not then you're not worthy and there are a lot of people going around uh, in our world walking through their every days believing that they're not really worthy therefore they they operate as if they're unworthy and then we call them bad which makes them feel even more unworthy Uh, and and that's a part of it the other part of it is it, it creates a split between consciousness and unconsciousness. So that whatever is unworthy, I'm going to stick in the unconscious because I don't want to know that I have that in me because I don't want to feel unworthy. And whatever is worthy or what I think is worthy is what I'm going to operate of because that's what I think makes me an okay person and makes other people love me and like me. And here's one of the things I say, and I'm not the only person that says it. Other people have said it too. But the idea is that if you believe that you're, you must measure up to that standard, somebody else, some other they out there is holding a yardstick that measures your worthiness, then you're going to feel like you have to do what it says. Because worthiness is one of those way down deep, low... Um, 
foundational bricks, big brick, that says you get to be here or you don't. You're, whether or not you're allowed to actually be a participant in the whatever's going on here on planet Earth is based on whether or not you're worthy to be a participant. And the people who actually suicide are people who believe absolutely that they're not worthy. Uh, suicide doesn't happen because somebody's really sad, although sometimes people can kill themselves because they don't want to face pain. Um, but bottom line, beneath all of that, is this sense that I'm not worthy. Now, I'm not talking about people who die because they've got a terminal illness. But I am talking about people who are depressed and kill themselves because there's this bottom line sense that I'm not worthy unless. I have not, and, and one of the diagnostic uh, to, uh, tools that we use to determine whether or not someone is actually depressed is whether or not they have this feeling of unworthiness. Um, that's one of the one of the criteria in the DSM five that uh, we use to determine whether or not we, somebody has a depression. And the more they are depressed, the greater level of their depression, the greater level of their unworthiness. And uh, pe- people just won't live in a state of unworthiness forever without some other identity to cover it up, mask it, put it in the unconscious. Or something. And so children who grow up in homes where parents either blame them a lot or um, cannot admit to their own faults at all, uh, somebody's got to take on the responsibility for that. And very empathetic children very often do take on responsibility for all the wrong in the house. And then they become the bad kid, the scapegoat. Um, So this thing of worthiness is huge. It's huge. It's a baseline of operation for us. And uh, we have based it on some real faulty concepts. One, that everybody else has an idea about what we need to be. Two, that that they're right. (laughs) And three, that there is a definite standard that cannot be argued with. Um, And it's based in some kind of paradigm of good and evil or good and bad. And that belief system causes more problems than it than anything else on the planet because it splits us off from ourselves. So what we do is we bury stuff in the unconscious that we don't want to know we have. So then what? We we when we decide that we're going to go work with some shadow material, how do we do that? Well, one of the first ways to do that is to begin to look at your dreams. Um, and that that method in implies that you are willing to look at metaphors. You're willing to not uh, take everything in your dream as an external event. So, for example, a wife has a dream that her husband's cheating on her. And she wakes up in the morning and starts slapping her husband and says, you know, you you cheated on me in my dream. Well, guess what? It was her dream. It was not his dream. He didn't dream about cheating on her. She dreamed about him cheating on her. And so she, what she assumes is that, oh, I dreamed that. It must be telling me that you really are cheating on me. She took it literally. In fact, that's not what the dream was telling her at all. Her husband represents something. He represents something to her in her unconscious. He has taken on a projection or a, uh, a archetype or a persona or a, um, an, a, an idea 
of reference that she um, that she uses in her psychology to say that's my husband, and it could be anything from love, to unconditional love, to um, uh, being inauthentic, to being committed to something that's inauthentic, to being all about image, to anything that her whatever he represents to her. That's in her psychology, and it's trying to tell her something about her. So everything in your dream, according to Carl Jung, has, is telling you about you. It's not telling you anything about your outside world. On some rare occasions, we do have dreams that tell us about the outside world. Um, but most of the time, they're telling us about ourselves. And so she dreamed about her husband betraying her. So what part of her psyche is betraying her? That's what the dream is about, and that's what it was meant to tell her, and not that her husband was cheating on her. Now, if it turns out that her husband really is cheating her, then we'll, we'll, we'll rethink that, but um, most of the time, that's not the case. And uh, so our dreams are there to tell us all the secret riddles that are going on in our psychology that we don't know about, and they speak to us in riddles because that's the only way we'll let them in. We don't want the whole... Uh, the whole thing shown to us in vivid color. We don't want to see a movie of our unconscious. So we have closed those doors. And so the psyche uses what it can to get through to us. And our dreams are one of those things. Uh, We can also get into the shadow by looking at how we are responding to certain life events. So we have an automobile accident and, um, One person who has an automobile accident will respond with, uh, wow, this is really hard and I've got some real emotional pain as well as some physical pain here, um, but I'm going to get through this and perhaps this person knows how to meditate, perhaps this person has um, resources in the world and in in his or her own psyche that they can depend on to help them get through this and they know that they're going to get to the other side in some kind of way. Is it hard? Yes. Is it impossible? No. Another person will respond with, oh my gosh, this now I've been crushed with this totally impossible thing. I'm never going to get through it. It's ruined my life. I'm never going to be the same. That kind of thinking. And they will be victimized completely by the automobile accident. What's the difference between those two people? Um, and you could say, well, the one has resources and the other one doesn't. Uh, who creates resources? <laughs> we do. So if if I've created a life with no resources, then and I have a, a, a terrible automobile accident where I'm going to need resources, that's a great time for my unconscious to wake me up. You know, my unconscious might be saying, "Oh, you need resources now." And but if I respond instead with, "I'm a total victim," then that's also coming from the unconscious and giving me information about how I address life. Life is big city hall, and I'm always fighting city hall, and I'm always going to lose because it's bigger than me. Well, is life bigger than us? Yes, indeed, it is. And we are one with it. We are one with the life that is bigger than us. And we are also bigger than it because we get to choose what we do. So there's that, that paradox that is very true when it comes to how we cope with life. Will we... Use this event to learn how to thrive better, or will we will it overcome us so that we feel ruined by it? Um, so when I hear people say to another person, "You ruined my life," uh, 
I know that that person is telling me about their psychology. They're not telling me the facts that that person actually did ruin their life because that nobody can ruin your life except you. But, uh, but they are telling me how they think, and that's more important. And so if you hear yourself thinking in response to a very difficult traumatic event, that same thought, oh, my life is ruined now, that's an opportunity to look at what look that material that just presented itself from the unconscious that you've probably pushed away from conscious awareness, and now it's up. So, what are we going to do with that information? What are we going to? How are we going to handle that? Oh, now I know I've got some victim thinking in there. Well, does that mean I need to beat myself up for it and 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 clean that out and make myself not think that way anymore? No, because that's all contrived. But if I sit with that thinking and ask it some questions, for example, where did you come from? How did I learn to think this way? What's this all about? Then I might become more conscious of old wounds, old material, old beliefs that I might need to bring into conscious awareness so that they don't sabotage me. All I'm doing is bringing them into conscious awareness. And then we need to talk about integration, which we're going to do in the next section. But the, but the idea is is that I'm, I need to become conscious of what's unconscious, not send it away. Sending it away is just making it more unconscious. We split ourselves off more when we say, I just want that to go away. What we're doing is saying, I want it to go back in the unconscious where it was. Just go away. You know, stay, stay in the unconscious. Don't be bothering me with your truth and wisdom. I don't want to hear it. But the people that are highly evolved are the people who have looked at unconscious material and integrated it. So first thing we have to do is say, okay, this information is my friend. This information is telling me something very, very, very important about me, about how I think, about how I absorb information, and about it, it can lead me down the path to how I learn to think this way and, and uh, to actually learning how that it, I have absorbed an identity that matches that thinking process. And that identity is keeping me from living the rich, full life I could live in my authentic self. So that's a, that's a real important piece of how we do that. So life events are another thing that can help us to discover uh, what's in the unconscious because a lot of emotions come up when there's a, uh, a life event, either a happy life event or a, a tragic or sad life event. Um, a happy life event might be graduating from college or getting an, a, a promotion at work. And, or having a baby. And those things are, are really happy, exciting events. And yet, they call up all kinds of emotions, both positive and what we consider negative emotions, to, to uh, make us aware. This is an open door for the unconscious. Oh, there's something new happening. The unconscious goes, oh, let me go, th- go in there and present this material. And, and we, it presents the material, and we want to say, go away, go away, go away. Why do women have postpartum depression? Sometimes it's because there's unresolved depression in there and here's an open door for the unconscious to present it so that we can deal with that and become stronger and more true to who we actually are. Um, so these are the, some of the ways that uh, the unconscious will make us aware. It does it through dream material and it does it through life events that come up and present as emotions inside of us. Someone has said that it's not the life events that are the problem, it's how we're responding to them. And what we want to say to that is, oh, well, I should discipline myself to respond better. And that's just more contrivance, more of the identity. 
unless of the unconscious. But rather we can say, okay, this is an opportunity for unconscious material to present so that I can begin to see more of who I actually am. And we're going to talk about more of this right after the break. We're also going to be listening to a clip from Super Soul Sunday's upcoming show. So you want to be here for that. Be right back. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. What is spiritual spelunking? It's basically an exploration of the truth, our own unique truth. Every single person in the world has a reason to be here. Although we are told many things, it's ultimately up to us to figure it all out. The search continues throughout our entire lives. Join host Giles Asselin as he serves as both guide and companion on this journey. Nurturing the spiritual spelunker in all of us can be heard every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Are you ready to shift into higher consciousness? Are you ready for contact with beings from higher dimensions? Ancient and new spiritual technologies will help you take that evolutionary step. Find out more about this powerful shift when you tune in to Conscious Evolution Radio with Ann Gelsheimer. Let's help humanity evolve, bringing in the best possibilities and ideas that our world needs right now. Conscious Evolution Radio can be heard live every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1 866 472 5795. That's 1 866 472 5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today about the shadow. But before we go any further with that, I want to tell you about Oprah's upcoming Super Soul Sunday. Jay Williams was hailed as one of the most electrifying college basketball players to ever come out of Duke University's storied program. After graduating in just three years, he joined the Chicago Bulls. During his rookie season, Jay struggled on and off the court to find his confidence and says he began to lose himself in what he believed it meant to be an NBA star. At the end of the season, Jay ignored the contract he signed prohibiting him from riding motorcycles and bought a high-speed sport bike. In June 2003, he crashed his motorcycle, suffering serious injuries that required 13 surgeries, 100 staples in his left leg, and physical therapy to regain the use of his leg. But this turned out to be a life-changing event for Jay, and Oprah will be interviewing him about how this changed his life this Sunday, March 15th at 11 a.m. Eastern and Pacific on Super Soul Sunday. Listen to a clip from that show. And so... In this time, in this circle of life, you've been able to take that moment lying on the pavement to really figure out who you really were. Because were you at that time, obviously, I would think, defined by basketball? Yeah, basketball was exactly who I was. And, you know, we talk about control, and I find it so fascinating that at that particular moment where the bike pops up on me, Mm -hmm. 
going 65 miles an hour, you know, I wanted to control everything. So in order to control it, I had to grab onto the bike because I don't want to wreck my bike. And that's everything about life. When you try to hold on to something so tightly, you truly realize that you don't have any control of it at all. That's coming up this Sunday. You don't want to miss it. March 15th, 11 a.m. Eastern and Pacific on Super Soul Sunday. So we want to talk some more about the shadow and how we are able to get material from the shadow and find it useful and then integrate with it. I said we talk in this last segment about integration. So what does integration mean? It means a blending. It means a blending of the two different sides of, of some different things. So when the schools were integrated in the South, whites and blacks went to the same schools. It's similar to that in the psyche. We're going to take things that seem to be opposed and we're going to put them together. And we're going to find out that they're not actually so opposed after all because both of them want the same thing. Everything in our psyche wants one thing. It wants for us to be whole, authentic self. That's what our psyche is leaning toward all the time. And so we get attracted to people that aren't necessarily good for us because we're being attracted to old unresolved issues that need to become we, of which we need to become aware so that we can resolve them. Um, we get attracted to situations that are going to help us to become more conscious. We find ourselves dreaming about things that are going to wake us up. So the psyche is always leaning toward wholeness. And therefore, we can trust that process. We can absolutely sort of get in that river and trust, us to ca- trust it to carry us where we're supposed to be going. We don't have to push the river. We don't have to contrive how, how it's going to work out. We don't have to have certain techniques about how to clean out the shadow or how to get rid of ego. What we need to do is surrender to a process that the psyche already has, one of wholeness. And every time we're in discipline mode or in uh, uh, contrivance mode, we are not in surrender mode. And the surrender mode is one where we, it says, I know my psyche is leaning toward wholeness and I'm just going to see what it has for me here. And so when we integrate something, it looks like what we described just a little while ago. Uh, and that's a, it's a real obvious example so we can use it again. A person who thinks they have to be good by serving other people and sacrificing the self, has over the years built up a a heavy load of resentment about which they suddenly begin to become conscious. And that consciousness makes them want to run away from it and send it back into the unconscious because the resentment is a bad feeling and people that are good should not have bad feelings. So they try to get rid of it and they find that impossible and then they come to therapy. And what we discover is that that resentment is actually telling them that... Um, you're actually doing things that aren't genuine. They aren't coming from compassion. You're not doing for other because, others because you genuinely have compassion for them. You're doing it for others because you think that that makes you a good person. And you don't ever want to see yourself as a bad person because underneath all of this is a game. Uh, this game has, there's a low-lying feeling of worthlessness. So I've got to be good in order to get rid of that feeling of worthlessness. Now two things happen. One is I begin to see that my resentment that I've buried in the unconscious can be integrated with that, that other part of me, my conscious self, because I can now use that resentment to clue me into the fact that I'm about to do something that I really don't want to do. 
that's not coming from the real genuine me, that's not coming from my compassion or my passion, but is only coming from that bargain I'm making with my feeling of worthlessness. The second thing that begins to happen is that I'm able now to look at that worthlessness and and begin to see where it came from and integrate that as well. So what what happens when i begin to integrate worthlessness is it becomes worthiness <laughs> it's a paradox i know but what what we can do is go oh okay that worthlessness comes from a belief it comes from a, some experience where i've sort of captured somebody else's stuff a lot of people who for example been sexually traumatized are are people who have absorbed their perpetrators badness so to speak they did that to me, but really, I don't want to believe that they did that to me, so I'm believing I somehow did that to me. And we don't even know that's buried down in there, and it's so convoluted, who would even believe that? It doesn't even make sense. But we do, because it makes it easier for us to cope. We think if we're in charge, then it's okay. Even It's better than somebody else being in charge, because that makes us out of control. So... We don't want to be out of control, so we'll just be that person. This is especially true if, it, if the perpetrator is a family member who we love. So I, I don't want them to be a bad person, so I'll be the bad person. And that happens way back in the unconscious without our knowledge. And so that unconscious feeling of worthlessness now dictates some of my action in the everyday world. Now I'm bargaining to try to be good or maybe it makes me sneak around and do little bad things because, or things that I might consider to be bad because that's the only way I let myself get away with them. But actually, those things might be the more truer of who I am. So when we, when we get conscious of the worthlessness, we begin to say, oh, I can see where that came from now. And I'm going to give back to the person to whom it belongs this stuff that I've been carrying. I've called, I've, I've, I've made it, it made, has made me feel unworthy, but actually it's just responsibility that I can hand back to the person to whom it belongs. And then I'm free to discover what's really true inside of me. So you see, that feeling of worthlessness comes from an unresolved issue of who's responsible for what. And that is the real issue. The worthiness is not the real issue. Because if, on the other side, we didn't really believe in our worthiness, we really would suicide. We wouldn't be here if we thought that we were truly, truly, truly unworthy to be here. And, and so, we haven't killed ourselves. We are still here. So, some part of us believes we're worthy. And there's a bargain going on between those two parts of us. The unworthiness and the worthiness are bargaining with this by saying, well, you just go off and do good things and then you'll feel more worthy. And, but if we can put those worthiness and unworthiness together, it becomes a whole unit where we don't have to bargain anymore. And then it's just an energy. Then it's just an energy. It's not labeled as worthiness or, or unworthiness. It's not, um, um, I'm, I'm a bad person anymore. And it's not even, I'm a good person anymore. It's just, I'm a person. And we put those two things together and it becomes this sort of new peaceful foundation from which we can now live. And that's what integration is like. Um, it's becoming conscious and befriending the alien energies. 
you know, you've seen these movies on TV or on, on the big screen where um, some alien creatures come down to Earth and either the movie is about how they're going to kill us all because they're smarter and brighter and, and more technical than we are, or the movie's about how we're trying to be friends with them and, um, and, and, and try to make some kind of peaceful accommodations between the two. Well, that's kind of like what it's like, the second one, it's kind of like what it's like when we, when we try to uh, integrate the energies from the unconscious. We, first, we, we befriend them. We say, you're strange to me. You're different from me. I don't understand you, but I want to know you. I want to find out about you. And then slowly over time, that alien inside of us becomes just an energy. And, and energy can be used for anything. So, for example, let's take something of which we are conscious and, and, and use it by analogy. Anger, for example, is a big old energy, and it can become bigger the bigger the anger is. I mean, if I'm enraged, I've got this big energy going, so much energy that people can feel it coming off of me even when I'm not doing anything with it. And that, that energy is big, but if I just use it for anger and, and just get enraged and start throwing things and turning over tables, then, then it's just you know gone. I've expressed it, and it's over. But if I can hold the tension just for a minute between doing something with it and feeling it, that's me saying, okay, I'm going to see both sides of this. I, I'm going to see the one part of me that wants to do something with this because it's all your fault or it's all life's fault or it's all God's fault. And this other part of me that just really wants to know what this energy is all about. First of all, what we begin to do is go, okay, I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to sit with this feeling for a little while. And, and what, become, what, become, what we become aware of is that it's just an energy. What we do with it is everything, but it's just an energy. And then what we become aware of is that that energy really is trying to protect me in some kind of way. So my anger is, becomes useful. If I've pushed away my anger and I usually have if it builds to rage rage comes from having pushed it away for a while first and then it bubbles up to the surface as rage so if it's rage then I've pushed it away and it's been in the unconscious for a while and then when it comes forth what I can begin to see is that in some way whether true or false in some way I'm trying to protect myself whether I really need protection or not I think I'm trying to protect myself and that is a form of self-love. So guess what? Anger that we've been repressing because we think it's bad is actually love. It's actually me loving me. It's me trying to protect me. You know, when, a, when a somebody comes after, in, in this day where we sort of live out of this huge masculine archetypal idea of what it's like to be a woman and a man, uh, we, we believe that Part of the man's job is to protect and to uh, provide for his family. So he sees it as his job that if something happens, if somebody comes into his house and violates his family in some kind of way, it was his job to protect them, and he didn't do his job. Somehow they got violated anyway. And so he, his, he, he does that because he loves the family so much. And he wants to protect them. And he also does that because he believes that that's his job as a man. Well, it's not his job as a man. That, that gender thing is an old archetype we've, we've sort of played with over the past 
20 years, but we haven't really done it, done away with it. But, but anybody, anybody can protect. Doesn't matter about gender. Anybody can protect, protect and anybody can provide for. But in that archetype, what that means is there's some kind of self-love. So, I mean, love for the family that, that makes him do that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is get to a place where, um, where we can see that this anger is a, is a kind of love. It's a self-love. And so that's how we integrate. That's, it's a process. It takes time. It may take a lifetime. But the process is very worthwhile because when the more energy we take out of the unconscious and become conscious of, the more we're living in who we are as, as really authentic beings. And the less energy we take out of the unconscious, the more it's filled up with old material, the less we're living out of who we are as authentic beings. So that's what we've got for today. And remember again, next week... On the 18th of March, we're going to be talking with Mark Nepo about his book, The Endless Practice, and Reduced to Joy, his two books, Reduced to Joy is the second one, Poetry and Prose. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that interview, and so I want you to mark it on your calendars and be here for that. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.